Welcome to Policy Pod, P-O-R-F podcast. The Ideas Factory is an exclusive series by ORF that delves into the big geopolitical events that affect India and the world. Hello, you're watching The Ideas Factory at ORF and I'm Nagma. Joining me is Professor Harsh Pant. This month, the weeks that have gone by have seen quite a few political upheavals worldwide. An ex-Prime Minister was shot dead while he was campaigning in a rally. A Prime Minister has been forced to quit. Another President has been forced to flee the country. We're looking at Japan, Sri Lanka, Britain. So a lot of upheaval that has taken place. We will look at all this and some more issues which are quite important as far as India is concerned. A warm welcome to you, Harsh. Let's look at Sri Lanka first. What's happening? This country is a broken country right now, politically and economically. As we talk, we also are getting news of a parliament being convened of Rajapaksa now in Singapore, but has been asked to leave the country as soon as this 15 days. Uh, so there is, uh, of course, there's a lot of political uncertainty in Sri Lanka. We do see people on the roads. There is no fuel. Their essential commodities are in great shortage. There's no medicine for people. Water shortage, fuel crisis, all of that. That's why we see the anger that we've seen on the streets. But there's also no promise in your future that things will be better. So there is political uncertainty. There's economic uncertainty. And there doesn't seem to be much help coming Sri Lanka's way. How do we look at Sri Lanka's condition in the coming months or years? Well, I think it's it's a very sorry state of affairs, Nagma. Uh, uh, and, you, you know, we have talked about this in the past as well, about the crisis, how it has been brewing for such a long time. Uh, and the inability of, of Sri Lankan political class to get its act together for the leadership of, of Mahinda, of, of Gotabaya Rajapaksha, uh, to understand the real nature of the problem, he continued to uh, think that he will get away with this, that that, that somehow by removing uh, his clan from top positions initially uh, and bringing in a new government uh, by Ranil Vikramasinghe, uh, he thought that, you know, that, 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 you know that, that the crisis is being managed. But clearly people thought otherwise and clearly the ground realities uh, spoke a different story. Uh, and I think that means that today Sri Lanka is on the verge of a crisis unlike any it has seen. And the trouble here is that there is, uh, you know, it's not as if we know uh, what is likely to happen uh, and, and how this will pan out because the real consequences are unfolding even as we speak. And the economic crisis is not going anywhere in a hurry. The political crisis, I think, is even bigger because the legitimacy of, of, of course, the Rajapakshi clan uh, has been uh, you know shred uh, you know to to uh, has been shred uh, shredded and the, there's no credibility in fact remaining for them but there is also the larger issue that you you have Vikramasinghe who's seen as an appointee of of uh, of Gotabaya Rajapaksha so his credibility is also on the line and then there is the question of whether uh, the political class can get its act together can work together to form an all party government. All those questions linger for Sri Lanka. And I think the sooner uh, the, the political class comes to terms with the scale of the challenge, the better it would be for Sri Lanka. But unfortunately, even if that happens, the IMF conditionalities, we know if, if, if you end up, uh, if Sri Lanka ends up having uh, a, a negotiations with IMF and getting a package deal, then I think we know the challenge that comes uh, with IMF. 
and we know uh, that uh, it's going to be a long, painful road ahead for ordinary Sri Lankans because the government will have to get its act together primarily by reducing expenditure, primarily by cutting social sector spending in the short term so that the long term can, can emerge uh, as, as, as brighter. But I think the challenge is, has just begun and Gotabaya Raj, uh, Paksha has not done himself any credit by fleeing the way it has, he has fled. And I think the consequences we are seeing that no country wants uh, to help him out at this point. We know uh, he has to flee from Maldives to uh, Singapore. And we know that, that he has kind of, uh, you know, he has become a radioactive uh, leader at, at this point. Uh, that no country would want to support him and, and, and incur the wrath of the Sri Lankan people because they really do see him and his uh, clan and his, and his family as the real source of the problem. And they are very angry that this is reflected on the street protests, but it is also reflected in the way uh, you know, they have continued to insist on removal of uh, even uh, Vikrama Singhe. Uh, so, so clearly, I think the challenges are huge. The scale of those challenges is, is so big that unless the political class comes together and gives a unified response, I don't think there is going to be, a, 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 you know, a, 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 there's going to be a, a shift very soon. Uh, and also, yes. I think it is it is very important to have a conversation with the people because yes. I, I don't I, think that people are not, you know, there is a there is a trust deficit between the political class and the wider Sri Lankan populace. Absolutely. Most people have been pointing this out, that there is a communication breakdown, actually, and the people do not know what's happening. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, like you said, uh, their the political class has to come together uh, in a unified way. But Sri Lanka, unfortunately, has also seen a lot of social strife. There, it, it's divided ethically, socially. Uh, you know, looking at keeping this in mind, do you think that's a possibility? Also, uh, we know that even Mahinda Rajapakse has been uh, barred from leaving the country. There's a lot of anger against Ranil Vikramasinghe. Uh, Gotabaya Rajapakse, of course, is like, like you said, a radioactive leader. No country is willing to touch him, not even his great friend China. China is actually nowhere right now in the scene. Uh, what, else, what can India do? India has been uh, helping uh, Sri Lanka in all ways possible. But right now, the, looking at the situation, what are the options for India or uh, it's a matter of great concern that a neighbor is so disturbed politically and at least the economic problem doesn't seem to be going away very soon? Uh, yes, I think for India, this is uh, certainly a very serious issue right on its doorsteps, which has immense consequences for security, immense consequences for people-to-people -people ties. We know uh, the, the issue of uh, migration also crops up. Uh, occasionally, and, and and we know that that you know that even a small issue can create uh, some uh, big long-term challenges. But I think so far India has been uh, signaling it, it's right. India has been making it very clear that that whatever help India has been giving, uh, it is uh, it, it is by keeping the interests of Sri Lankan people at heart uh, and at the heart of of its response. And I think in in a sense. Uh, that has been the difference between India and China. Uh, China, as you, as you rightly point out, has, has been almost, uh, uh, you know, has, has almost disappeared from from the scene uh, and is unwilling to even make uh, make statements apart from generic ones. So I think China is is very cautious because it knows that it is seen as a very close ally of the Rajapakshas. And and given the the anger against the Rajapakshas. Uh, it would be foolhardy for China to, to enter into the scene at all. So I think uh, China has been keeping a safe distance. But the real challenge for India is that India can't afford to do that. India is not 
you know, a, a distant neighbor. India is, is invested in, in, in the in, in the well-being of Sri Lankan people. And I think so far the help has been uh, more than $3.8 billion has been quite significant. But I think India will have to do more. But what India perhaps will have to do more uh, uh, importantly will be to galvanize an international response to this crisis. This is not something that IMF alone can take care of. This is not something that India alone can take care of. The international community will have to come together and help a country that till a few years back was seen as a rising star among middle-income countries. It was doing so well, exceptionally well. So I think uh, it, it, is, uh, it, it is something that the international community will have to look at seriously. And also India's neighbors and other small countries that are uh, you know, in, this, uh, in this habit of taking uh, loans and, and incurring debts uh, of this kind will have to rethink their economic strategies because what this exemplifies is that economic mismanagement can very quickly turn into uh, political anarchy. And this is something that uh, that all uh, of India's neighbors, all of, uh, I think, uh, small countries uh, in, in the Indian Ocean and all developing countries should be very, very cognizant of. It's a lesson for all the countries. Economic mismanagement has led to this political anarchy. Um, it's clearly just not COVID. There's been a lot of mismanagement, mismanagement economically, and that is why the anger against the ruling class, especially Rajapaksa clan, uh, you know, uh, Sri Lanka, of course, the problem continues. It's a very dire situation there. And uh, we just hope that things settle down, at least politically. But let's look at Britain, Harsh, what's happening there. The race for the next British prime minister is heating up. Rishi Sunak seems to be till now on a winning streak. But we've also seen Boris Johnson raise the pitch that back anyone else and not Rishi Sunak. So all that is really interesting there right now. Uh, and uh, uh, he's. Uh, how, how do you see this unfolding? I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty with Scott uh, in the midst of a lot of scandals, but there have been things against Sunak too. So what are his chances and how do you see this uh, settling down? Uh, I think uh, uh, Sunak uh, is doing well uh, so far. Rishi Sunak uh, is, is the front runner, as, as we all know. Uh, but I think the challenge that he faces and I think the challenge uh, which the Tories, the Conservative Party, uh, will be thinking very, very carefully about is that, you know, how do you choose a leader who is widely viewed uh, in, in, in Rishi Sunak in this case is, is viewed as coming from the, uh, you know, the, the most elite section of, of the country that, you know, he's seen as a, a very, very wealthy person. He's seen as someone who uh, who has stalked off and who has been reluctant to do, um, uh, you know, raise uh, uh, wages which was one of the points of discussion at one point in time. He has he wants he wanted to consolidate uh, British finances fiscally, and so he was, uh, uh, you know, he was against uh, uh, what he thought uh, was, uh, you know, frivolous expenditures not needed at this particular time. He wanted to consolidate fiscally um, uh, British finances, and so he was he was seen as a fiscal conservative. And many in in the in the country perhaps view. Uh, him as uh, you know as a problem at a time when uh, ordinary Britons are facing enormous economic challenges and they would want more government help. So I think uh, for for conservatives as they would be going into and entering into elections uh, in 2023, uh, the the question would be whether they would be able to manage this uh, with with the Labour Party that is on the rise and Labour Labour will go hammer and tongs uh, at Rishi Sunak uh, if he's elected. So I think uh, that. That is his Achilles heel. That is his vulnerability. Uh, and uh, and also, of course, when you talk of Johnson and Sunak, they were very close at one point in time. But it was Sunak's resignation 
that tipped the scale against Johnson. So therefore, now Johnson is insisting that he would have anyone but uh, Rishi Sunak to succeed him. How far is he able to convince the rank and file of Conservative Party? That remains to be seen. But I think there is also a larger issue here in the fall of Boris Johnson, that here is a leader who was so charismatic, who was, uh, who was seen as immensely talented, but because of sheer lack of discipline, has ended up uh, being, uh, will end up being uh, a footnote in the history of British politics. He had so much potential. Uh, he delivered Brexit, one of the, you know, one of the long, most uh, uh, interesting uh, aspects of British, uh, of Tory uh, demands for a very long time. Uh, he led Tories from the front in 2019 elections, a very decisive mandate. But again, in the end, uh, a series of mistakes a series of uh, uh, malgovernance uh, and, and, and and overconfidence in his own ability to manage that, and that led to his collapse. Uh, and, and to let and his and his and I think this is not simply a collapse in the support of Boris Johnson, but it is also impacting the Conservatives nationally. Conservatives who have been the dominant party for the last two decades, if not more, in, in British politics. So I think there is a lot happening in British politics and Rishi Sunak uh, and, and whatever happens in September when if Rishi Sunak gets elected or someone else gets elected, I think that the Conservative Party is in for, a, for, for some tough times ahead. Absolutely. So Rishi Sunak faces a lot of challenge. Uh, the fate of the Conservative uh, Party is also not certain. There are many <coughs> questions there. And uh, along with it, uh, interestingly, you point out that Boris Johnson, who got a very decisive mandate, may end up being a footnote in the history of British politics. Uh, another really interesting news that has come out or a favorable news that has come out of the U.S. Uh, for India is the Katsa waiver, which may come through, Harsh. Uh, the U.S. Uh, House has, uh, through voice vote, approved of the Katsa waiver, special Katsa waiver for India. But uh, there's still a long road ahead. Uh, President has the final word. And if this comes through, then India will be able to purchase the S-400 from Russia. But interestingly, this comes at a time when the Russia-Ukraine clash, the war, has taken place. And India, very interestingly, has maintained a very independent stand, although India has has uh, always said that it is not in favor of the war, but has not really openly condemned Russia for its act the way the West would have wanted. But now this special waiver for India at a time when China and Russia have come a little close, uh, how does it benefit India? What does it mean for America? And why this special waiver for India, if we look at India's position geopolitically, how can we explain that? Uh, I think you know, it speaks uh, certainly to the uh, to the strength of, of India-U.S. relationship uh, that at a time when uh, a number of uh, people, a number of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a growing section has been voicing concern about uh, uh, you know the divergences over Ukraine. Uh, we we end up in a situation that uh, that the House of Congress, which is actually the most difficult part. Uh, of uh, of the um, of the uh, of the U.S. political establishment to convince uh, has been uh, India has been able to convince uh, the U.S. House of Congress that uh, that this is an important uh, relationship and that uh, India should be granted a waiver and I think this speaks uh, to the strength of the relationship that even at this particular time when differences are uh, you know very visible on on the on the Russia question the the bilateral relationship between India and the U.S has reached a point where there is greater degree of confidence uh, than, than there has ever been today in India's ability to uh, shape the regional balance of power in the Indo-Pacific and to 
help America achieve some of its objectives. So I think it, it's ironical that at a time when India is taking positions which are which are going against the American position uh, on, on Russia, this kind of confidence is visible and it is visible in U.S. House of Congress, which has been very, very critical on certain issues as far as India is concerned. So I think Indian uh, diplomacy has to be given credit for achieving uh, you know this result. I think uh, Senate uh, is certainly it, it will now go to the Senate, and ultimately uh, it, it is the, the prerogative of the Biden administration. But I think uh, that the message that is coming out of Washington is that uh, the relationship is stable, that the relationship remains uh, supported by all uh, sections of the U.S. government, uh, the executive as well as the legislature, and that uh, that uh, despite Russia, despite the, this uh, Ukraine question. Uh, the relationship has not, uh, you know, uh, seen a deterioration, and and one hopes that uh, you know that this would allow India uh, not only to, you know, uh, India is already uh, in, in the process of buying S four hundred, and India India made it very clear that it is important for India's national security interests that the, that these platforms are available to India, because India is facing China, India is facing uh, the you know China as as an operational reality along the LAC. And there is, uh, and India, if, if India has to stand on its own, if India has to take on China on its own, such platforms are very important. Uh, and this is a message that has gone out, and it, this is a message that is in sync with also uh, America's uh, strategy that America's partners uh, in the Indo-Pacific are able to manage China's rise on their own. So interestingly, there is a dynamic now taking place between America and its partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific, where uh, the, the the relationships between them among them are changing and this i think uh, underscores that reality for india and for washington and, and and this is an important message from washington yes uh, while it is a uh, good news for india it's also uh, i think very significant for america strengthening the india us defense partnership as far as china is concerned or the threat from china is concerned uh, before we wrap up uh, this episode of the Adidas Factory, uh, Harsh, I would like you to reflect upon uh, Shinzo Abe's legacy. Shinzo Abe, uh, the prime minister who's probably the longest serving prime minister of Japan and who worked a lot in terms of India-Japan relationship or his, uh, his legacy, his footprint on the global geopolitics. And you've been following it really closely. Uh, it, it was the way he was shot at in um, a rally. And of course, uh, Twitter was abuzz with a lot of conspiracy theories and the Chinese angle and all of that. But let's, uh, I want you to reflect upon the India-Japan ties during his term and also you know, his imprint on global strategy, the initiatives that he took? No, I think uh, there are very few leaders per, uh, in, 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 in recent uh, history, in recent memory, who perhaps have this kind of a legacy uh, that Abe leaves behind. Because his imprint is all over the place. It's not simply, of course, it is, a, you know, he was, he was, he was Japanese prime minister. Uh, and 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 he challenged some of the fundamental assumptions of Japanese politics, uh, some of the fundamental uh, ideas in Japanese politics that have under uh, uh, you know that have underscored Japan's view of the world, view of itself. And he challenged it frontally. He managed to uh, you, you know renew the debate and refocus that debate uh, in a very very different platform. And and, and remember, this is a self-confessed conservative. This is a conservative prime minister. And conservatives are meant to preserve the status quo. But he challenged the status quo within Japan, 
uh, in, in, in Japanese foreign policy and in, in, the, in the larger uh, regional and global uh, geopolitical landscape. From, I think, uh, uh, today, as you look at Japan, as you look at Japan, that is more confidently trying to assert its, itself uh, in the Indo-Pacific. When you look at Japan's uh, uh, defense uh, reforms, when you look at Japan's uh, foreign policy outreach to its key partners, uh, without Shinzo Abe's legacy, without Shinzo Abe's push, that would not have been possible. Uh, when you look at Japan's push towards re-energizing its economy, uh, there are elements of uh, of Shinzo Abe's legacy that will always be present now. He shook the, I think, Japanese bureaucracy in ways that few uh, recent prime ministers have done. And then when you look at his, uh, his global and regional outlook, he was very aware of the fact that you know, the, the tectonic plates in, in, in the Pacific are shifting. Of course, he was uh, in, in many ways, uh, he, he shaped the discourse on the Indo-Pacific right uh, when he was a prime minister, in, when he came to India in 2007, his famous speech conference of the two seas to Indian parliament. Uh, the, the, he, he laid down this idea that Indian Ocean and Pacific Oceans should not be seen as two distinct entities. And he also pushed India that India should be doing much more. India should be much more ambitious about its foreign policy output. And I think that has been one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways in which Indian Prime Ministers, both Dr. Manmohan Singh and uh, followed by uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, have looked at India's role in East and Southeast Asia and this push towards the Indo-Pacific uh, narrative. And I think without him, without his push, without his intellectual uh, demarcation of, of the boundaries of, of Indo-Pacific, without his... Uh, you know, uh, he, he he led the way in terms of shaping this narrative. Without his leadership, it would have been not it would not have been possible uh, to have this kind of acceptance of this discourse as we see today. Uh, so I think, in so many ways, uh, his legacy is so profound that we'll be living with the world, perhaps, or with, you know, uh, with the architecture that he shaped um, for the foreseeable future, and India in particular. Uh, has to be uh, really grateful for uh, for, a, for a friend like Abe who, who could push India in in areas where India was reluctant to go. India was diffident, uh, but he, as a as a true friend, pushed India to do much more uh, to 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 be a balancer, to be a critical player, to be a leading player uh, in the Indo-Pacific narrative. And I think without India, there would not be Indo there would be no Indo-Pacific. But without Abe, there would be uh, you know uh, India would not be doing the, uh, India would not be playing the kind of role that it played. And therefore, by buttressing India-Japan relationship and removing some of the long-held problems, for example, the nuclear question, uh, he ma made it very seamless. India-Japan India relationship is one of the most trouble-free relationships today that we have. And that is uh, because of uh, Abe, who could conceive of a new relationship uh, in a new uh, era of the Indo-Pacific. So I think we owe him a lot here in India. And I think perhaps in, throughout the, the world, uh, when you look at global geopolitics and global geostrategy evolving, uh, Abe's imprint, Abe's legacy uh, is, is all over the place. Yes, uh, yes, of course. Abe's, um, you know, his imprint of his politics is really huge on global geopolitics. You spoke of the Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific and how it's shaping up and how Abe was instrumental in actually pushing this narrative. Uh, but Hush, very quickly before we end this episode, I want a quick comment from you on a new grouping that has come up. The I2, U2, India, Israel, US, UAE, and it's being looked upon as a quad of, for West Asia. So a new grouping, a new platform as far as West Asia is confirmed. What would is concerned? What would be its vision or objective? What is it? 
objective? Uh, I think it's a very interesting and innovative uh, uh, platform, uh, partly because it links uh, Middle East or West Asia to South Asia in ways that we had not seen in the past. Uh, it, it was conceived last year at the foreign ministerial level, and 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 this week we have seen the first leaders level summit or, uh, during Biden's visit to Israel. Uh, and I think it, it builds on this idea that uh, that a new kind of an architecture is being is emerging in, in West Asia, uh, you know, where you have post Abraham Accords, Israel, UAE uh, and, and other Gulf countries uh, working closely together. There are reports of even Saudis uh, reaching out to Israel and, and having a closer relationship. And I think to bring India into the fold means that a number of the geoeconomic problems and I think they, the I2U2 summit laid out uh, problems like health, foods uh, uh, and you had the infrastructure, uh, space, uh, all of these issues, all of these verticals, water, uh, where uh, these countries can bring in their wealth funds, uh, investments, and, and a country like Israel uh, can bring in its innovation. Uh, India can bring scale. Uh, if, if you have the, uh, you know, this kind of a platform, this allows for a number of these issues being tackled frontally. So it's a, it's, 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 it, what is emerging is that I2U2 is likely to emerge as a very significant geoeconomic platform uh, in, an, uh, you know, in, a, in a region which is known for its geopolitical um, uh, configurations. So uh, it's, it's an it's a innovative platform. It's a new platform. Uh, a lot will depend on how some of the projects that it, it has identified in, the, in this leaders level summit will, be, uh, will get fructified, will be operationalized. But I think uh, the hope is that as uh, the geopolitical architecture of West Asia changes, uh, and India becomes more invested uh, as a rising power in uh, in the Arabian Sea. I to you two can provide that fulcrum around which a number of these conversations, uh, specifically on geoeconomic scandal, are. Yes. Very interesting grouping with India coming together with the US, with Israel and the UAE. So that is something that one would look forward to what kind of relationship emerges and how does this grouping really work. Uh, thank you so much, Hush, for that analysis and discussion. It's been a rather interesting week, or I would say a very turbulent couple of weeks for the world uh, with so much happening in Sri Lanka, in Britain, in Japan. Uh, we will keep we will keep following up on these big issues. Thank you so much for watching and being with us for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.